Hi, writers. I'm glad you are here for our new episode on writing fiction, both novels and short stories. This is Jim Thayer. Let's talk today about embarrassing material. Here's a well-known rule for novelists. Don't write about dull stuff. Here's a less well-known rule. Don't write about embarrassing stuff. To embarrass means to make someone uncomfortable or shamed, of course. Here's a key. Sometimes embarrassing a character is a strong plot point. But there's a difference between embarrassing a character and embarrassing a reader. Why is this important? Because people, you and me as readers, don't like to be embarrassed, even when it's only on the page. There are some things readers just don't want to read about because they're embarrassing. These things are often distasteful and usually they aren't critical to the plot. Here's some things we don't need to read about and so we writers don't need to write about. First, trips to the bathroom. John opened the toilet seat and unzipped his pants. I'll be out in a minute, dear, he called over his shoulder. <laughs> Readers don't want to see our character use the bathroom. For some reason among new writers, a strong urge exists to document toilet and grooming habits, maybe to show the character uh, that the character is a down-to-earth person with everyday functions. Readers assume characters use the toilet. There's no need to document it for them. A second thing is stuff that's too confidential. When Joan was in ninth grade, she would sit in the back of her math class, her eyes locked on Mr. Chambers, blonde, a notched chin, a dreamy smile, and only 23 years old, with her hand hidden under her skirt, and sometimes when no one was looking, she would... Most readers simply don't want to know this about Joan. It's too personal a glimpse. Another one is too close an examination. Adrian looked in the mirror and pulled down her lower lip to reveal the yellow, <laughs> the yellow leaking canker that had been bothering her for two days. Life is too short to read about canker sores or jock itch or dandruff. If you don't want to think about something in your life, your readers don't want to read about it either. Head lice, tapeworms, flatulence, halitosis, spare the reader this. Another one is those little things we all do. Well, maybe you all do. Lisa hawked up a lunger and spit it into the sink. Bruce scratched his crotch. Elizabeth stuck her finger in her ear, fished around and nabbed some wax. She studied it. It wasn't as brown as last time. <laughs> we don't need to write this stuff because we don't want to read this stuff. Another one is sex that's too graphic. Adult readers know about sex. They don't need a manual. And here's a uh, key. Readers usually want romance in their story, not so much sex. And in any event, 
sex scenes are hard to write because it's easy to slip into porn or unintentional comedy. There are other embarrassing things to avoid, but I'd rather not list them here because it's embarrassing. Readers don't like to be embarrassed in their own lives or in their reading lives. The key here is embarrassing a character is often a compelling plot point, but embarrassing the reader, usually in an attempt to humanize a character, will make some readers turn away from the book. Let's talk about the middle of our novel, the middle third. We've written the first hundred pages of our new novel, and we've worked hard on it, and, and it has such promise. We, we've created a dazzling opening, compelling characters, intriguing settings, some fresh plot developments. The, the first third of our novel is the literary equivalent of a 1952 Pontiac grill. It sparkles and shines. But now we've reached the middle. The task of writing the second hundred pages lies before us, and as we try to outline and write the upcoming scenes, the novel's shine starts to fade. And to mix metaphors, our novel begins to resemble a damp and steamy bog. Welcome to the middle that portion of a novel many authors find the most difficult to plot and write. At times like this, the fun of writing may disappear, and, and the end of the project seems farther and farther away. Why is writing the middle of a novel often hard? Why do we writers often slow our pace and waste time and, and become in, uh, discouraged and, and sometimes... We might abandon the project when plotting and writing the middle of a novel. The reason the middle of a novel is often so hard to write is that our story doesn't have enough story. The story doesn't have enough story. What does that mean? It means there aren't enough obstacles and there aren't enough subplots. First, obstacles. Almost all popular fiction is about a protagonist who wants something he or she can't have, and the story is about the struggle to get it. She wants love, wealth, revenge, safety, redemption, freedom. Someone or something is placing obstacles in her path. The middle of the novel seems hard to write to hard to plot and write because we haven't invented enough obstacles. We haven't come up with a sufficient number of things to block our hero from obtaining her goal. Think back on some popular novels. What are they but the account of one impediment after another blocking the protagonist's path in a painted house uh, a wonderful novel written by John Grisham, which is set in the rural South in the 1950s. Uh, John Grisham sets out one hurdle after another. A bully from the hills. A fire. A cranky grandfather. A bully from Mexico. 
a lazy deputy sheriff, a stolen truck, a bully from the bottom country, a beautiful young lady likely to stir up passions and falling cotton prices. And we can almost hear John Grisham think as he was plotting, not enough obstacles yet. So he adds a terrible flood. Uh, Is this technique for plotting the middle of a novel, inventing more and more obstacles, used just by modern genre writers? Watch the master Charles Dickens erect obstacles one after another. Ten-year-old David Copperfield's widowed mother has a new fiancé, Mr. Murdstone, one of literature's great villains. Murdstone sends David to Salem House, a wretched boarding school. David's mother and infant baby brother die. David is sent to a counting house in London where he starves. With his only possessions, a small trunk, a half shilling, and the clothes on his back, he flees London for Dover, intent on finding his only living relative, his Aunt Betsy. David is in dire straits, but Dickens has just begun tormenting him. A brigand steals David's trunk and half shilling, leaving him penniless. David sells his waistcoat for a meager ninepence to buy food, and when that proves to be not enough, he sells his jacket to a merchant who cheats him. David arrives in Dover after six days of walking, his, quote, shirt and trousers stained with heat, dew, grass, and the Kentish soil on which I had slept. My hair had known no comb or brush since I left London. From head to foot, I was powdered almost as white with chalk and dust as if I had come out of a lime kiln, End quote. That's Charles Dickens. In this condition, David presents himself to his only living relative and his last hope, Aunt, Beps- Aunt Betsy. Is Dickens finally done with this poor boy? Aunt Betsy's first words to David are, Go away. David could have had an easy walk to Dover, but but Charles Dickens knew better. This is the one darned thing after another technique. Grisham knows it well, and so did Dickens. One obstacle after another is placed in front of their protagonists. The middle of a novel should be filled with people or things preventing your protagonist from reaching her goal. If the middle of our novel seems to slump, we should consider adding more roadblocks. Another technique to keep the middle from sagging is to mix in a subplot. A subplot is a secondary plot that is related to the main plot. It's a story within the story, often involving a secondary character. Uh, Subplots are similar to the main plot in that they have a beginning, a middle, and an end. The uh, key to a good subplot is that it it enhances the main plot. A subplot doesn't feel as if it were pasted into the novel simply to, to increase the distance between the book's front and back covers. 
Let's talk more about subplots. A plot is the rendering and ordering of the events and actions in a story. According to Aristotle in Poetics, a plot is, quote, the arrangement of incidences. The role of a subplot is to introduce additional interest and tension. Here's the key. Subplots should be important to the progress of the main story instead of independent episodes put into the story as padding. Here's the test. If this subplot were removed, would a new reader notice that something is lacking? If so, it's likely a strong subplot. A subplot is a secondary plot. It's an auxiliary to the main action. Subplots often involve supporting characters, those besides the protagonist or antagonist. An example of a subplot is Nick Carraway's relationship with the tennis player Jordan Baker in F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. Carraway is the novel's first-person narrator, so his impressions are the reader's impressions, at least at first. Carraway's father has told him, quote, Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, just remember that all the people in the world haven't had the advantages that you've had. So Carraway says on the first page of the novel, quote, I'm inclined to reserve all judgments, end quote. Too much so, it turns out. The romance, the romance between Jordan Baker and Nick Carraway is designed to illuminate Carraway's naive suspension of his critical thinking. He doesn't see Jay Gatsby for who he is. Carraway tells Gatsby, quote, you're worth the whole damn bunch of them together, end quote. Uh, partly due to the Jordan Baker subplot, the reader begins to understand that Carraway is an unreliable narrator. As the novel nears its end, a disaster is imminent. The reader sees this clearly, but Nick, the first-person narrator, does not. The subplot has deepened the reader's understanding of Nick Carraway. In Catch-22 by Joseph Heller, the main plot consists of U.S. Army Air Corps Captain Yossarian's attempt to avoid dying in World War II, but a subplot develops around Mess Hall Officer Milo Minderbender's rise as a king of a black market in food tra uh, trafficking. In Goodbye Columbus by Philip Roth, the main plot consists of the romance between Neil, a 20-something slacker, and Brenda, a suburban princess, but a subplot develops around a child who loves art, art who loves art books and, and whom Neil observes at his job in the public library. Movies and plays also have subplots. In My Fair Lady, the, the main plot involves Henry Higgins' passing off Eliza, a cockney flower girl, as a duchess. The subplot involves Freddie's courting Eliza. And there's another subplot, a tertiary subplot involving Liza's father becoming respectable. Subplots are distinguished from the main plot in several ways. First, they take up less of the action. Uh, secondly, they have less significant events occur. 
Uh, third, they usually involve secondary characters. And because, uh, uh, because they are short, short stories usually don't contain a subplot. Uh, like the main plot, a subplot should have a beginning, middle, and end. And it should have uh, conflicts, obstacles, and, res uh, and resolutions. Uh, usually, a subplot is resolved or ended before or at the same time as our main plot. Most stories can only support one, two, or three uh, subplots. Any more and the reader might get distracted from the, the main plot. Uh, each subplot is structured as a complete story, but they don't float independently alongside each other or the main plot because that dissipates focus and, and takes away the reader's attention to the main plot. Uh, a good subplot can help the story in a number of ways, can flesh it out. Uh, a subplot often conveys the theme because the main character may be too busy with the main action uh, to delve into, into deeper uh, theme issues. Subplots can help examine a main character's desires or his relationships, uh, vulnerabilities, or the main character's growth. In a character-driven story, a subplot may carry the action in the story. That's the reason that when novels are adopted into movies, often the main plot and the subplot are transposed to increase the visible action on screen. The novel writer had a lot of the main action happen in the subplot, but the screenwriters who take the novel reverse that. And here's a key about subplots. They are, or should be, all about contrast, not recycling the events and the ideas of the main plot. Uh, maybe a main plot is about a large family escaping tyranny, while a subplot involves a group of nuns who stay behind. That's, of course, the sound of music. Subplots can be about almost anything in a main character's private or personal or professional life. Uh, and here's another key. Most subplots can be thought of in terms of relationships, uh, the main character's relationship with another uh, person or another thing. In Gone with the Wind, the, uh, Scarlet, the Scarlet Frank Kennedy subplot has a beginning, middle, and end. Sue Ellen's boyfriend, Frank Kennedy, asks Scarlet for her opinion on an engagement to Sue Ellen, and Scarlet gives her consent. Uh, Tara's formal, uh, former evil Yankee overseer, Jonas Wilkerson, now he's a scallywag, raises the taxes on Tara to force the O'Hara's out. He wants to live there. Scarlet comes up with a plan to go to Atlanta and get Rhett to give her the money to pay the taxes. She's all, uh, she has her faithful mammy make her a dress out of Tara's velvet curtains, uh, one of the only original things left in the mansion after the Yankee looting. She finds Rhett in jail, and when he tells her he can't give her the money, she sees Frank Kennedy, newly a store owner and apparently prosperous, 
and she lies to Frank that Sue Ellen is going to marry someone else. Frank is unable to resist Scarlet. He marries her and gives her the tax money. Uh, Scarlet is roughed up at a shanty town, and to avenge her, Frank, Ashley, and the rest of the local men raid the shanty town where Scarlet was jumped. Uh, Bluecoats show up looking for the men who raided the shanty town, and Rhett convinces the Yankees to leave, where it's discovered that the gentleman feigning drunkenness is in fact Ashley, who's injured, and Frank is dead. Uh, Scarlet's relationship with Frank is a subplot that serves to add to the characterization of Scarlet and to the action in the plot. In The Godfather, bending the movie producer to the Godfather's will is a subplot. I'll make him an offer he can't refuse. And the famous scene of a Hollywood producer waking up next to the bleeding head of his prized racehorse is riveting. Subplots may seem complex, but really their job is only to make a novel seem that way to the readers. Uh, crafting a subplot can be as simple as writing a smaller story, uh, a smaller story that takes place alongside the main story and enhances or embellishes an idea or a character from the larger story uh, in a new way. And here is a strong technique about subplots. Novels benefit from contrast. A subplot should contrast with the main plot. A subplot's action, tone, setting, and many other things should be different than the main plot. If the main plot doesn't have much action, the subplot can offer action. If the tenor of or the mood of the main plot is tension and danger, the subplot might be used to add humor. If the main plot has a grim setting, the subplot setting might be sunnier. If the main character is fearful and gloomy, the subplot main character, the subplot's main character, can be more lighthearted. Subplots can be terrific at offering contrast within a novel. So are we stalled in the middle of a novel? Samuel Johnson said, quote, Life affords no higher pleasure than that of surmounting difficulties, end quote. So if we're having difficulty with the middle of the novel, we can add obstacles and a subplot or two, and we will surmount the difficulty, and doing so will give us great pleasure. We have arrived at the end of this episode. If you'd like to send me a message, my email address is jimfairseattle at gmail.com. I will see you next time. And until then, this is Jim Fair. Please keep tapping those keys.